Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. The title for this week's blog is Government and Advocates Negotiate to Preserve Foster Children's Income. Approximately 10 to 12% of foster children are entitled to Social Security benefits, either because of a disability that they have or because they are survivors of parents who paid into Social Security. Most Minnesota counties use these revenues to pay for foster care. And there's a fact sheet in our blog that has details on this. However, House File 3211, which is authored by Representative Dave Pinto, preserves these funds for youth when they age out of foster care into adulthood. The Department of Human Services in Minnesota and counties are working with us, Safe Passage for Children, and Foster Advocates, another nonprofit, to craft a bill that everyone can support. Now, benefits average $700 a month, and that accumulates pretty quickly, even for brief placements in foster care. So youth who have even modest assets are going to be able to do better when they transition to independence. Uh, There is an NPR story that is linked to in the blog, and it shows that New York City is already taking this step, as as has the state of Maryland. Now, there's still differences to hammer out between the advocates and the government agencies, but if this bill passes, an estimated 1,300 foster children will gain access to their own income for the first time. So this bill addresses the fact that counties in Minnesota and in states across the country, for that matter, have for years, 10, 20 years, maybe more, made themselves what is called the representative payee for children when they come into foster care and if they have some income streams associated with them. And then the counties and states have taken those funds to offset the cost of foster care. Sometimes it more than covers the cost of foster care. And instead, it's our view that these revenues ought to be set aside for children because it's actually their money. Now, and research you probably know shows that when youth age out of foster care, they do much better, even if they only have a few thousand dollars to work with, and hopefully more, but even if they only have a few thousand dollars They do much better than children who age out and have little or nothing. Now, it gets pretty technical and pretty complicated after this because there's several possible ways that the income can be attached to children. But there's two main ones, and they're both administered by the Federal Social Security Administration. The first one is based on the parents of income in foster care when the parents have worked and paid into Social Security. So either the children are entitled to these benefits 
because they're survivors of the parents or because the parent may still be alive but has a disability. In either case, children typically get 50% of the amount that the parent receives. So if the child moves into foster care, that 50% should go with them. And now the new representative payee becomes not the parent, which is normally the case, but the county or the state. So about 15% of children in foster care who have some revenue stream associated with them belong to this group. Uh, and it's not entitlement money like a public assistance program. It's money that actually they, they are entitled to because their parents paid into Social Security. And the second Social Security program is based on the child either having a physical or mental disability. And this is called a means-tested program because it, it's uh, the children are receiving their money because they're disabled and don't have the income or the means to take care of themselves. So about 85% of children in foster care who have some kind of income are in this category. And then there's a few very small programs, additional sources of revenue for children. They are the Railroad Retirement Program, uh, which is uh, benefits like Social Security for people who are survivors of someone who worked on the railroad. There's benefits for survivors of black lung disease and veterans benefits. And these make up a really small number of cases. But those revenues are, of course, really important to the few children to whom they belong. And whoever, again, has custody of the children is generally the representative payee, the parents or whatever relative has custody of them or guardian. And those are the people that normally actually get the money. Uh, but as this podcast is being delivered, Safe Passage is part of a coalition of nonprofits, which is led by foster advocates, which has been working with the State Department of Human Services and representatives of the counties to craft a bill that is going to correct this situation. And part of the agreement is that the state would put money in the budget to make the counties whole for the income that they would be losing. Now, a bill of this nature has already been implemented in the state of Maryland. It's been around for two or three years, and they're kind of still getting down the learning curve on that, which includes a growth over time in the number of children who are getting these funds because the counties are figuring out how to do this. Unfortunately, in Maryland, they only begin putting money aside for kids when they reach the age of 14 and start at 20%, and by the time they're about to age out, it's 100%. We'd like to do better than that in Minnesota and have the money accumulate whenever they're in care. But one of the things that is tricky about this is that unlike the old days when children would go into foster care for extended periods of time, there is so much emphasis on reuniting families that often children are only in foster care for short periods, and sometimes they're in and out of foster care quite a bit while they are children and youth. So that makes it really hard to track the money, and also it means that the funds don't accumulate you know, year after year until the child becomes 18 or 20 or whenever it is that they age out. So it's it can be a small amount of money, but again, it accumulates quickly. Uh, the average amount, as I mentioned, is about $700 a month. So it wouldn't take too many months in foster care to have, you know, a nest egg of a few thousand dollars ready for you when you uh, aged out of the system. Now, in Maryland, the money is aggregated and then, and then sent to a third-party administrator, basically a mutual fund operations or something of that sort, or maybe a social services agency that sets up individual accounts for these children and invests them. 
In addition to Maryland, New York City just this week decided that it was going to stop taking these revenues that belong to foster children and uh, set them aside in accounts for those kids. Unfortunately, they aren't setting those funds aside for children who are disabled in some kind of a special fund, but are just putting them in an account and they're subject to uh, Medicaid caps. And so they can only accumulate $2,000 before they hit the asset limit in Medicaid and that's all they'll get. In Maryland, by contrast, and this is the approach we hope to use in Minnesota, they are setting these funds aside in a special account that uh, either a special needs trust or something called a 529A, and I'm not going to get into the details, but those accounts have the benefit that they are not subject to the federal asset limits, and so you're not only allowed to save $2,000 for these children, but you're allowed to save their revenue streams ongoing uh, for as long as uh, they are in care. Now, a different and more aggressive approach to getting states to redirect this money into accounts for the children is to file a lawsuit, and this is how it's being done in Alaska. There was a lower court ruling now that required the state to stop taking these funds and redirecting them to their own coffers, and that case is now on appeal. But in the meantime, the state has not been told affirmatively to set these funds aside for children, so that piece of the puzzle is still waiting to be built. Now, while it's simple in concept, this this idea, the implementation of this kind of bill is complex. It's going to require the counties to start compiling lists of children who are receiving these benefits and then start sending out, up that information and the funds to the state. And then there'll be kids going in and out. And so they have to track all that. And then the state has to set up systems to track all these payments coming in and to hand them off to some entity that they will have to contract with. Uh, so that entity can set up trust funds for each individual child. And that could either be a different state agency or a third-party contract. But uh, making sure that no money gets lost and that uh, the contractor is a reliable uh, organization and so forth, those are fairly significant administrative build-outs that still have to be done. Um, so there's some expertise that the state has to develop there and develop in managing that third-party relationship. And there's policy considerations too. For example, um, whether the parents continue to receive money once the child is in foster care as the child's representative payee for some grace period, because maybe the child will be back home by the time they can turn all this around and get a trust fund set up. Uh, and then if the child does return to home, let's say it's six months down the road, where does the money go that was accumulated during that period of time? Does it get set aside indefinitely for the child, or do the parents now have access to this nice lump sum that the child has accumulated since they are once again the child's representative payee? So those are the kind of things that have to be sorted out in what, again, seems like a simple concept in the beginning. So given all this, where the legislation is, is that the state and the county say, hey, we need some more time to build out all of this administrative capacity. And the problem is, the dilemma here is that there's only a short period of time to get the bill passed during the current legislative session. Now, in Minnesota, at least, and I assume in other states, every session has deadlines by which time bills need to get passed through whatever committees they need to go through. And right now, those deadlines are only three or four weeks away. After that, bill, normally a bill is dead until next year when you can try to bring it back. 
And that's barring some extraordinary measures in either the House or Senate. Sometimes you can do things in conference committees uh, that um, will resurrect a bill that's dead. But for most bills, that's the end of the line if they don't get through the committees by the deadline. So while this is making it uh, very challenging to get this bill passed during the current legislative session, the good news here and the bottom line in this whole discussion is that when we started out, the state and the counties were pretty skeptical about doing this. The counties didn't want to lose the revenue. The state didn't see, you know, what was the advantage to uh, to their program. But now it appears as a re- as a result of all of this conversation and working together between the two nonprofits and the state and the counties, that they are sold on this idea. They recognize at this point that this is the funding, that this funding really belongs to the children. And so that means, I think, eventually, whether this year or next year, we're going to get this done. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.